Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Get started for free with a $100 credit. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk. One-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stokoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of changelog.com. What would be the impact on the world if a computer science education was available to you completely free of charge until you got a job in that field paying $50,000 or more? That's the question that drives Austin Allred and the team behind Lambda School. Lambda School is a revolutionary new school that invests in its students and they completely align their interests with their students. Seems like a novel idea, right? But Austin's path to Silicon Valley was where things began for him. So that's where we got started. Austin, let's start with how you got to Silicon Valley. I understand you had to endure some extreme circumstances to make that happen? Basically, I wanted to get to Silicon Valley, but I had no money and I had yeah, basically no money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so long story short, I found a blog of a guy that had been living in his car in Silicon Valley and figured, hey, I could, I could do that. Then I don't have to have money. So I packed up in a Honda Civic and I drove across the country and lived in my Honda Civic for four months. Not very spacious living. No, I, I had been kind of used to a little bit of a minimalist lifestyle for that. So right. I was more prepared than I would be today, for example. But still, it was difficult with regard to perishable food. You have to be out in the morning before it starts heating up because it gets too hot. Right. You have to go somewhere to work out and shower, which probably creates good habits, but Definitely not convenient in any way. How long was this time for you in the this type of living? It was just over four months. So before you got to Silicon Valley, what was what were you trying to do? Like you said, you didn't have much money. So where were you at in life? Were you just out of university? Were you just past the degree? What was your state of like education and also means? Yeah. Um, so I was going to school. I was couple semesters into studying advertising at Brigham Young University in Provo. I'm pretty much just bored out of my mind. So I eventually decided that I couldn't handle it and just needed to get out and um, needed to get to the valley now instead of waiting, which felt like a very, I don't know, felt irresponsible. The wait or to go? Leaving. Like you're supposed to stay and finish college, you know? Right. But I was just going crazy. I was sitting in classes all day. felt like I wasn't learning as much as I should. felt like there was all this exciting stuff happening and I wasn't a part of it and I just wanted to go be a part of it right now. So was Lambda School always what you wanted to do or what, what was like when you were driving to Silicon Valley in the, I'm assuming in the Honda Civic, mm-hmm. you were thinking something. What was, what was on your mind? What were you dreaming of? I mean, at that time I wasn't really sure. I knew I wanted to start something. I knew I wanted to be in tech. So when I was younger, I actually, 
had this random chance to sit down for half an hour with some NASA astronaut. I asked him basically, you know, how did you end up being an astronaut? Surely, you know, it's every kid's dream or it seemed likely to me that every kid wanted to be an astronaut. Later, I learned that that's not actually what literally every kid wants to do. But, you know, how did how did you get there and why did so few other people? And he said, and this is this still resonates with me, that his entire career, what he did was just try to figure out what he thought was most exciting and figure out how to get in the middle of it. So that was basically the entirety of my goal. I knew that Silicon Valley was exciting. I knew I loved tech. I loved the internet. I loved computers. And so I just wanted to get in the middle of it. And that was pretty much it. So four months in a car, at what point did Lambda School become a thing? Uh, So it actually didn't become a thing until years later. So I ended up working at a marketing agency. I worked at another company. Um, I worked at a lending company in San Francisco on the growth team. And after all of that, we started Lambda School. So it was a pretty long journey. Okay, you say we there. Who is we? And and give me sort of a snapshot into like the early, I guess, brain thinking around how this idea would form. (laughs) Yeah. So so funnily enough, you know, it was me and my co-founder, his name's Ben Nelson. He was living in Utah at the time. And we, it wasn't necessarily our plan for this, for what Lambda School is today to happen. I wanted to start something so that I could run my own company and not be beholden to other people. And originally it was just going to be a bootstrap code school that was entirely online. We figured the market would be bigger. And then as we started working on it, we realized that the, the traditional model of code schools are totally broken, that you can't, you can't actually serve the people who want to attend the most because they don't have money, which is kind of the point. And yeah, really, you know, we felt like the entire space just needed to be rethought from the ground up. Um, we talked to a lot of students and said, you know, what is it that you're looking for? And basically everybody said, you know, I want to get into software engineering but I can't afford the risk. Is there any other way I can pay for this, you know, after I'm hired? And so we started figuring out how to make that work. And it's been a couple of years since then now. And it's a very different company today than it was then. So this idea of charging zero tuition kind of came by way of trying to bootstrap, trying to get there and realizing, hey, there's actually a lot wrong with this model. And we shouldn't be building what everyone else is trying to build. We should be building something similar, but very different in terms of the economics. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we originally started out just, you know, we're going to be yet another code school that was entirely bootstrapped and the same as the other hundreds of schools mm-hmm. and started talking to our customers, trying to figure out, you know, what needs to be different. That's when we really stumbled upon the model that we have today. It's taken a lot of work to make that model make sense, but really it was what do our students want? What do our customers actually want? And how can we give that to them, even if it's something that's very difficult to deliver? Let's talk about building or stumbling, I guess, as you said, onto that model and the work that it's taken to make it possible. It seems like there's a lot of capital. It's a capital intensive model to pursue. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, it is. That's correct. So let's talk about money then. Where do you get the money? Yeah, so we we started out bootstrapped. And basically, we learned that if we had a few people pay up front, it would cover our costs. And it was just me and my co-founder at the time, and we were willing to live on ramen. And then we could just build up this catalog of people who had attended and who got a job. And we could just kind of build up this big 
backlog on our books of people that owed us money over a long period of time. So we started out by saying, hey, let's figure out how to make free work. And we wanted it to be longer than a normal code school. So we said, hey, let's make it six months instead of three months. Let's charge $20,000 instead of $10,000. And if we get like one or two people to pay up front, then that funds the rest of the class. And we did just that. So we applied to YC saying, hey, you know, there's this, you know, we're trying this free thing and a ton of people are applying. So it seems like there's a business there, but we don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is. And that's basically how we got into YC. And then we started figuring it out from there. And that was less than two years ago. How many years into the start for YC in that, in that scenario there? Uh, so we were about two months old when we applied to YC. Wow. So we were pretty, pretty uh, new. Pretty young. What's the backstory on Y Combinator? Like as part of the incubation, as part of being a part of that round, what, what was involved? What, what did you learn? How important was that to you? Uh, y Combinator was crucial for us. Uh, mostly, you know, when we got started, there were f- a couple subtle things that they changed uh, or helped us change rather. Um, so for example, we were, you know, we said, okay, we'll do one cohort every six months. And then when that cohort graduates, those guys will all go get jobs and we'll start another cohort. Um, and YC said, you know, by the time you guys grow to any kind of scale, you're going to be, you know, four years old. And that's just a really long time. Maybe, you know, what would it take to start another cohort next month? And we just never been thinking about it up until then. So we, for some reason, our minds were, you do one cohort after the other and you just rotate them through, which that's how all the physical schools work, right? But YC said, why can't you just stack them up on top of each other? And yeah. Um, so basically perpetual acceptance, always coming in. Never really a start or a beginning to a semester or a cohort, as you say. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, why only do two a year? Why don't you do one a month? Mm. You know, if we would have done two a year, then we would have been on like our third cohort right now. Right. Instead, we're about to start our 19th web cohort and we've got probably 20 other cohorts running. So it's uh, just a fundamentally huge decision. What about the, so the economics is one thing, but then having the talent to actually educate is another thing. We actually just did a, a call recently on a different show. We have the network called The Change Log, and we were talking about why smart software engineers write bad code. And it's basically this, you know, a discussion between the dichotomy between academia and industry, right? This separation. So how do you, how did you build a team that could educate the future software engineers we need to have? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a teacher. Um, my co-founder was a pretty good instructor. And then we, we basically hired one of the best instructional designers in the world. So that's one of the reasons that we've been successful up until this point is we, we really had to rethink instruction from the ground up. We had to rethink, you know, how does teaching work? What does a school look like? Why does it look like the way it does? What should it look like? What should the student experience be, you know, day to day, minute to minute? And I, there's no way I would have been able to figure that out on my own. We needed world-class experts as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. I think one of those things where every software engineer thinks they're a good teacher, but teaching is a highly underrated skill set. It's much more difficult to achieve than people assume it is. So yeah, I think that, you know, that was one of the key decisions that we made and it's, we're still seeing the benefits of that today. Everything's online, right? So, I mean, I'm curious how you merge 
what you just talked about there, you know, the need, the need for the talent, but also the ability to instruct and the, the education experience, so to speak, uh, the curriculum, but then also marrying that with being anywhere. So from what I understand, uh, you take applicants in the United States and the European Union. So that means you've got s- sort of two dramatically large areas in the world to, you know, use as a base, so to speak. But that means that they can come on to land a school and from anywhere. They don't have to be there physically. So that means potentially custom software. What's the software back end behind things? Like not so much the tech, but, you know, how much did you have to build to get to a concept to actually bootstrap and run on? Um, in the early days, not too much. Um, so it was pretty much Slack and Zoom. So one of the things that people don't realize as much about Lambda School is that it's still, it's live and interactive. So there's actually a live instructor on the other side, you know, teaching you in real time. Mm-hmm. It's not a MOOC that we throw up on a platform and you just view the videos at your own pace. So the, the software aspect wasn't difficult. It was how do you get people to participate in an online environment the same way or better than they would in a physical environment? How do you, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to, I mean, cause most, you know, you say yet another code school, but I mean, I can literally say one called code school that uh, does a significant presence on site, you know, significant presence that isn't just live videos. It's, you know, different than you've designed it. It's interesting how you came to that position though, to, to do things live, like what were there earlier iterations that got you to that? Or was that sort of the way you began it and you were just, you know, sort of smart luck, so to speak, to, to land there first? Uh, that's really the way we began. When we initially started talking about Lambda School, we were talking about should we do online or in person or, you know, what should the model be? We decided online made more sense. There a lot more, it's a lot more difficult, but we hoped we could figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's obviously more scalable, a lower cost basis, et cetera, et cetera, if you're online. So yeah, we just kind of jumped in and said, we need to figure out how it works. So for us, the idea of having it pre-recorded never, it, it didn't make sense to us. We wanted it to be a real classroom experience, so to speak. Mm. A, uh, you know, a student's schedule essentially is show up to live class Maybe walk us through that. Let, let me not assume. Walk me through what that is. What's the schedule like for a, for a student? Yeah, so it's it's 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific. We do everything in what we call an IY loop, which is from the instructor's point of view, I do, we do, you do. So there's a, a new topic, and the instructor will build something, and then he'll build the same thing using the same topic as you build something alongside him. And then you'll build something while the instructor watches and critiques. And we basically do that loop again and again and again. So it's not just theory, it's hands-on. Oh, it's very, yeah, it's very hands-on. How far along would the student need to be in software to kind of participate well in that kind of loop? Sorry, say that again? Meaning, you know, how, how far along does the student need to be in their education? Do they need to be familiar with the terminal? Should they have a Mac? I mean, what are what are some of the sort of like, unassumed prerequisites for a student to participate well in that kind of loop? Um, yeah, really for the, for the introductory classes, we start with, you know, here is a text editor, here's HTML. So we start from the very, very beginning. Interesting. You have to do that stuff as a prerequisite before you get into the rest of the school. So is this outside the normal nine months that I think it is now? I think you said six months was the beginning, but is it nine months now? Yeah, it's, it's nine months now, and this is, yeah, this is before you start. Mm. So we call this our pre-course work. 
Gotcha. Is there a throughput there in terms of like how many succeed and go on to the actual curriculum? Are there some that fail or bail? You know, what's the scenario there? Yeah, they're most fail or bail. That's actually one of our biggest filtering mechanisms for knowing if somebody is committed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so there's a significant investment that you're putting into people, right? That you've seen the model be wrong. So you defined a new model. You assume this model could be right. And there requires some, you know, some capital to make it happen. You've described how your economics are that and if you get a couple people to pay up front, and I'm sure the way you accept classes and build out classes is based on, well, we have to have four or five or X pay up front. The remaining amount can be pay zero and, and we can define that model, which we haven't done yet. But it seems kind of interesting how you've done that because you've got to invest in people. And that means you have to have the right people in place. So this prerequisite, is, has that always been there? Or did you sort of like stumble upon it and it's like, wow, we really need to have a filtering mechanism. How do we do it? Here we go. Yeah, so we started out by just teaching introductory classes to get people interested. And then, you know, as we kept going on as a school, we realized, you know, all the people who are performing the best are the people who did that introductory class. And, you know, people who haven't can be confused or they can be behind or they're moving at a different pace. So let's just let's require it for everybody. But yeah, I mean, every student costs us thousands and thousands of dollars. So we have to think very carefully, A, before we accept somebody, and then B, you know, they're not putting in cash up front. So we we have them put in a little bit of sweat equity instead. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that sweat equity, because you kind of own a bit of the future of the person in terms of their earning potential, but that's only based on if they hit certain salary requirements. Can you walk me through what this, you know, zero tuition model is and potentially even tease the stipend side of things too? Yeah, uh, basically a student signs what's called an income share agreement, um, which means they they pay us a percentage of their income for two years after they get a job in the field that they studied for. So if you're studying to be a software engineer, um, the floor is 50000 so you don't pay anything unless you get a job that pays more than fifty k in software engineering. And then you pay 17% of your salary for two years, and if it ever hits $30,000, then you're done and you stop making payments. And the other side of that is that they can also opt to pay in full, which is sort of part of your model too. Can you break that part of it down so it's less, I'm assuming that you're saying you have a threshold, you know, you got to get four or five, I don't know how many in or in a cohort, but there's probably some sort of ratio that has to be pay up front versus you know, zero tuition, as you'd mentioned here. Yeah, originally that was the case. Now we, I mean, we've raised almost $50 million in VC. So we don't have those kind of constraints anymore. We still do have people that pay up front, sure. but pretty of our students are using the income share agreement. Was part of this raise specifically to cover that capital requirement or was it sort of to build up the platform or, you know, future platform? What was a lot of the ideas behind those millions? Yeah, it, it's all of that. So, you know, we after Y Combinator, which gave us, you know, $120,000, we raised $4 million. And then we decided we could either, you know, kind of wait it out with that $4 million and wait for our revenue to build up. Or if we wanted to keep growing at the pace we were growing, we would have to raise a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So we ended up raising another $14 million, And then a little bit after that, another $30 million. Um, We raised a little bit more in between then. But yeah, all in all, it's, you know, it's to build out a platform, to build out a hiring network, to train people and 
you know, at the end of the day, it only works out if students get hired and can pay us back. This episode is brought to you by Discover.Bot. Learn everything there is to know about bots at discover.bot slash founders talk. Discover.Bot was built by Amazon Registry Services as an online community for bot creators and makers of all skill levels to learn from one another, to share stories, and they regularly publish guides and resources to answer questions like how to set up payments to your bot, how to stop shopping cart abandonment, what KPIs are worth measuring, how to write an engaging chat bot dialogue. You can even register .bot domains there. Learn more and explore this huge library of bot resources at Discover bot slash founders talk again discover.bot slash founders talk what's interesting is that you are uh you know you're sort of placing a bet so to speak on the future of software and then software developer salaries right like i mean sure we know where software is going but there's been bubbles in the past i'm sure there's probably some fear on your on your side but you're placing a huge bet on the future of software do you feel that i mean obviously that's the truth right yeah i don't think uh yeah that that is correct (laughs) software is one of the safest industries to place that bet in the industry as a whole is growing much faster than even normal companies are. Yeah. But yeah, eventually we'll apply the model to other industries. But yeah, I think software was a pretty no-brainer place to start. What do you think's been the hardest thing so far about building Lambda School for you? And you know, we think about hard things about hard things. What was that for you? Um, I mean, basically figuring out how to help thousands of people learn and get jobs. <laughs> it's just running the whole thing is pretty hard, making it all sustainable, making it work for everybody, that kind of thing. What's your personal role, your day-to-day? I mean, being a co-founder is one thing, but what is, what are the things you have constant inputs into? Um, I mean, everything. Right now, it's a whole lot of hiring. We're, we're just about to hit 80 people now, a lot of which are instructors and career coaches and student success people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we're hiring product and engineering and all over the place. We've got the student growth is so fast that we have to kind of build systems and infrastructure to help that scale. And that's a lot of it. What are your thoughts on uh, on student debt? I think it is mostly unnecessary. <laughs> I think we have made debt so cheap that people aren't thinking hard enough about whether it's necessary and the incentives are misaligned and a lot of students are getting into a lot of really bad debt and they don't fully understand what's happening. Given the success of this model with Lambda School, what kind of message are you directly or indirectly sending to say universities or traditional schools where this debt is being applied? Like you said just now, like since it's so inexpensive, you know, they're not questioning, the students aren't questioning whether they should. They're sort of just doing it because it makes, it seems like it makes sense. Mom and dad did it, you know, so-and-so did it. Uh, I probably should too. Yeah. I mean, in the early days, that was a, a battle that we fought a lot. Is that, you know, there are other paths outside of, you know, the traditional educational model. You don't have to go get a master's degree in computer science to be hireable. Mm-hmm. Luckily, you know, the code boot camp scene before us broke that down quite a bit. Yeah, now it's, I mean, we get a thousand applications a week. It's just not a problem anymore. Mm. We had to do right by the early students and do everything that we possibly could to help them get hired. And when that happens, you know, word spreads pretty quickly. The vast majority of our students still come through word of mouth. So it's pretty crucial that we don't do anything sketchy or 
treat anybody poorly. Mm-hmm. Where where's uh, the demographic, so to speak? Like, where do you see the most demand for Lambda School in the world? Obviously, we mentioned earlier, and I'm assuming that's still correct, is the United States and the European Union. So, where of those two do most of your students lie? Uh, yeah, mostly in the United States. Um, we've got students in every state right now, and then in a bunch of the countries and territories of the EU. But generally speaking, we over-index a little to more rural areas. And then age of the students is, you know, kind of early 30s, late 20s on average. But not everybody. We're now seeing people, you know, drop out of some of the top schools and go directly to Lambda. So it's a pretty pretty broad spread. Pretty young, pretty old, pretty urban, pretty rural, kind of all over the place. We touched on curriculum before, but uh, it makes sense now to kind of dive a little deeper. So you got... Web development, data science, Android development, iOS development, and user experience design. Where did you begin? You began with web, is that right? Yeah, we we began with web development and kind of added on from there as we got enough employer demand to add a new program. And we've kind of just assumed that the students would always fall in line, which has mostly been true. Um, Eventually, we'll have to figure out how to shift people into the classes that are the most necessary. But yeah, it's, it's working pretty well. How do you mean fall in line? Can you unpack that for me? Yeah, so there's, I mean, we have m- more employers more desperate to hire Android developers than probably every other category, but not every developer wants to be an Android developer. So if I could wave my magic wand and force people to take classes, um, we would probably force more people to take Android development. But you don't want to force people to do something they don't want to do. So we'll, you know, that said, a lot of the people in web development, their main goal is just getting a job and they'll do whatever it takes to get a job. So I think you could shift web development students to, to Android and they'd be just fine. Mm. Do you think part of that shift might be, like, what are you doing currently, I guess, to convince them or to entice them or encourage them? Right now, nothing, <laughs> which is why I say we need to figure it out in the future. So how do these categories come up? I mean, obviously, we know data science is a pretty big deal. We have a show here at Changelog called Practical AI. We love diving deep into all things machine learning, data science, you know, all all those different things. But uh, Android, I wouldn't imagine that it was that big, but I'm surprised to hear you say that it's so significant for you. Then obviously iOS and, and UX. UX is sort of at large, right? It sort of is synonymous with web development. You need to have you know, user experience designers out there and designers out there. So how did you map these different curriculums? Did it just sort of naturally appear or were you like, we have to have iOS, we have to have Android? All these come to be. Yeah, um, I mean, usually it's everything we do, we start by talking to employers. We talk to employers and figure out, you know, what are your needs? What are you having a hard time hiring for? If you could wave a magic wand you know, what would there be available for you? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we go work backwards and create that, basically. Wow. This employer network, I'm assuming there's some sort of network there now. Uh, how deep is it? I mean, not so much numbers, but just in terms of like wisdom there for you. Oh, I mean, it's it's thousands of companies now that we're interacting with. Mm. When somebody wants to tap into that with you, what, what kind of information do they need to bring? Do they need to bring, is it just like, hey, Lambda, I want to Im- inform you about the kind of engineers and software folks we need. Uh, here's my information. How do they begin this relationship with you? Yeah, I mean, so they would go to something like lambdaschool.com slash hire. Um, They fill out a form. We get on a phone call. We figure out what the right approach is. For for most of them, um, if they're hiring, we bring them into 
uh, do what we call a career day and they do a presentation about their company and they start interviewing graduates immediately. Some have more specific needs. Um, some people just email us and say, hey, I really need a bunch of this. Why don't you train this instead? So it, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly what the demand actually is. You have a pretty impressive job placement, too, since we're on the subject. 86% of graduates have jobs within 180 days. That's pretty significant to say. I mean, that's, I mean, compare that for me, though. I, I'm not, as you'd mentioned before, you're, you haven't always been in education, but neither am I. What does that compare to, to other, other uh, competing, I, I would say, you know, bootstrapped coding schools and or universities? Um, it's best in class out of all of those. Yeah. It's interesting too. the, it seems so logical, honestly, that it would make sense to say, Hey, employers, what kind of software engineers do you need? Okay. We'll help you make those, you know, like I almost feel like everyone else is starting on the other side. Like what's cool out there. What's shiny, what's impressive, what's moving the needle in terms of interest. But then does that actually relate to real jobs? Yeah, I think it, you know, it speaks to our model. Most people are looking first and foremost at what can I get students to sign up and pay for? And then hopefully there's something on the other side. Um, whereas for us, you know, we don't get paid unless they get a job. And that's the harder piece of it. Mm -hmm. We can get students. I mean, we could 10x our number of students tomorrow. Wouldn't make us any more money, but <laughs> we, we could do that. It might make us a little bit more money, but you know, that's, that's a result of your incentives being aligned with the student. Mm. Well, since you mentioned that, what are the pillars of revenue for you? I would imagine that the bigger one or the most obvious one is, is tuition or payback tuition. What are the other options you have for revenue? Yeah, it's pretty much tuition. I mean, we have like a store, but it's, it's <laughs> like t-shirts and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Do, do the employers not have to pay you anything ever? No, they don't. Wow. So I didn't expect you to say that for one. I think that's pretty cool that you are completely aligning with the student. Because if, as you just said, if the student doesn't make it through and get a job, especially over 50K, then you don't get paid. So you're incentivized to educate students to the point where they're, they're hireable for one. And then not just hireable, but hireable at a higher, or I would say a middle mean of, of, uh, of salary. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's not easy, that's for sure. What's, uh, what's the percentage of those who graduate that don't have to pay you back because they make less than 50000 a year? Uh, 14% right now. <laughs> We're trying to reduce that. What would it take to reduce that? Like, What are the levers there? I mean, some of that might be on the admission side. Maybe we're accepting folks that we can't get all the way there. Mm -hmm. And some of that is... You know, what if we had a better hiring partner or a better class or a better something that would help them? Um, you know, it's it's that entire funnel from you just heard about us to you got hired. How can we make it better? A lot of the time it's people get frustrated and quit too early. Um, you know, they look for a job for three or four weeks and they say, oh, I you know, didn't find it. I'm not qualified, which is obviously not the case, but people don't believe us when we say that all the time. Yeah, it really just depends. Obviously, that's where most of the company spends most of the time. It's trying to figure out how to improve our hiring percentage. Is it by any chance on the employer side where they're not willing to pay that much? Or is it just simply not getting jobs? 
Because it seems like you're saying not getting jobs is the bigger issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's pretty rare that you can't get an employer who's hiring software engineers to pay $50,000. Right. I mean, it happens in, you know, not in San Francisco, it doesn't yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, net, we're in a, we're in a pretty good spot there. It's more just the binary, does it work for you or does it not? So what are you trying to do then? If, if, if 10xing students tomorrow doesn't really make you much more money, what are you trying to grow towards? What's your goals? I mean, I'll, I'll 10x hired students if I can. Okay. You know, we want to get to a place where we're training half a million people a year. Um, and we're replacing half a million people a year. And right now you're at what? A couple a thousand, a couple thousand. And so, you know, we're 250x off. <laughs> um, I love it. It's ambitious. I'm not laughing because I'm laughing at you. I'm laughing because I love the ambition. Like that's, that's huge. We need that, right? Like we as an industry need that. We need someone uh, like you all behind Lambda School to have that kind of ambition because there's certainly... You know, we both know, I would assume this at least, that as you said before, software isn't going anywhere as the industry is growing, right? You plan to dip into other industries, but I think right now it would make sense where you're at, that it, it's not going to go anywhere. And to keep going this route, we need that. I mean, there's going to be people that are looking for more software engineers every single day, and we have a talent issue. What do you think about the talent issue out there? Yeah, I mean, that's the gap that we are built to close. We find places where there are not enough employees and then we find places where there are people who can't get jobs and we match make and we move one type of employee to another type of job. Mm. And I think that's a fundamentally missing piece of the economy. There's no market maker for people. And that's kind of crazy. What's, what's missing aside from being able to 10 X hired students, you know, what else is missing that you know, like, what's your biggest challenge aside from that? Um, we're still trying to figure out international. So how to make this work at scale internationally in countries where there's not the same kind of infrastructure around credit and contract law and stuff like that. So that's pretty mm-hmm. difficult. Do you think you need to solve that problem now? Or do you think, I'm not saying isolate yourself and only camp out in the areas you are, which is the United States or the European Union, but do you really need to? What's the draw to those other areas? obviously educate the world, but I mean, you particularly as a business. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're actually going to do our job to help people shift from where they are to where they ought to be, that's kind of what is required. Mm -hmm. You know, there are millions of people in other countries that are completely cut off from access to Lambda School right now. um, And we can fix that. What are things that need to happen to fix that, that you're actively working on? Uh, we need to figure out what the right business model is in different countries. We need to figure out the compliance and the regulatory stuff. And then we need to hire and build out a school. Mm. So let's dream a little bit. Let's paint a, a big picture for the listeners. You know, what is your biggest hope, your biggest dream for Lambda School? You mentioned already, which I think is kind of huge, but can you go bigger than that? Educating a half a million software engineers that's pretty huge what else beyond that that's the the north star right now is how can we you know train half a million people a year and get them placed if we're doing that we're in a really good spot and then we'll have to figure out more ambitious goals <laughs> after that more ambitious goals oh, okay so what's uh what's on the horizon then for you what's something that most people don't know about uh could be the stipend could be something else what's something that 
is maybe sort of new or newish or coming up soon that you can share more details about? Uh, yeah, there are a few countries we're tra- we're pretty close to getting into. Can't talk about which ones yet, unless um, the regulators come raining down. There are other courses that we should be launching pretty soon here. We'll sell software-based, but different than what we've done in the past. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it for now. We just launched a mentor program where every we're pairing every student up with some local software engineer in their area. Um, and they're getting mentored, you know, once a week, once a month. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. I'm curious if you're concerned at all about anybody copying this model. Because, I mean, there's nothing proprietary here, right? No. I mean, go for it. You want the world to, to compete with you? Yeah. Yeah? Good luck. Yeah. Feel free. Feel free. Yeah, I think the, the model is the easy part. Saying, hey, we're not going to charge people until they're hired. The difficult part is making it work. And that's what we work on all day, every day. So, yeah, do it. <laughs> what do you think your magic sauce is, your secret sauce for, for making it work then? Since you say that the model is the easy part, but actually doing it is the hard part. What do you think, if you could sum it up, what would it be? Um, it's instructional design and having built out a hiring network nationally and um, really good instructors. And it's, you, know, you kind of have to do it all to make it work. Well, Austin, thank you so much for your time today. It was uh, it was awesome having you on Founders Talk. We're super fans of what you're doing. Obviously, you know we're deeply invested in the future of software as well. And it's I kind of came to this conversation not knowing your motives, and I come out the other end uh, happier to discover your motives are perfectly in line with the students and your financial models are all based upon hireability and less about, hey, let's just get more people to buy, you know, a curriculum, so to speak. You're really about investing in the future of software engineers. I think that's that's awesome. Uh, I thank you for that. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thanks for taking the time. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Go to iTunes, Apple Podcast, Overcast, whatever you're using favorite it leave us a rating or review if you tweet tweet a link to a friend and of course thank you to DigitalOcean and discover.bot for sponsoring the show also thanks to fastly our bandwidth partner at the fastly.com to learn more and we're able to move fast and fix things around here at changelog because of rollbar check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on Linode cloud servers at the linode.com slash changelog support this show music is by the one and only breakmaster cylinder and if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's awesome. Check it out at changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows in one single feed, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon. Because you've listened all the way to the end of the show, 
Got a little preview here for you of our upcoming podcast called Brain Science. This podcast is for the curious. It explores the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and the human condition. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and my good friend, Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied. Not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives? Here we go. One of the things that's fundamental, I would say, to being human is change, right? And so sometimes people come in and are really key in our life for a period of time, and then things change. Either we grow or they grow or they change in a different direction, and then the relationship changes or that feedback loop gets modified in some way. That isn't always a bad thing. It's just going, my sense of choice actually is a critical component when it comes to feeling good about my life. If I feel like everything is sort of outside of me and I don't have any charge over it, like I didn't choose to work (laughs) in a more remote location or I didn't choose to go to school or I didn't choose this person, then it feels far more oppressive as opposed to I actually participated in the outcome that I'm actually experiencing. So I then also have more charge over whether or not I want to change it. I think this uh, feedback loop process that we're talking about here is is super common to to developers, you know, from people who write code to people who plan and to engineer and to uh, manage and lead. Like there's no one in the software process that doesn't understand the, the feedback loop. And the reason the reason why is because in product development, they, they have this concept of agile. And basically it means you produce something, you put it out there and you expect the feedback loop to happen in order to gain insights and course correction to then release another version of it that, that continually and iteratively becomes more and more improved. So this whole process in day-to-day work in software is normal. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting how it can apply to their lives and people's lives, you know, to take the same importance of a feedback loop, for example, and apply it. Right. Well, so this is very much how it goes in relationship, which is why there is an importance when it comes to sort of things resonating. You ever walk into a room or an interaction with a couple other people and like something just feels wonky or off? You're like, I can't put my finger on it. But Definitely been there. <laughs> right. Well, and so to be able to identify that in relationships and even go, wow, I need to, I'm experiencing this person in my world with the limited interactions that I have with them. It hasn't really resonated with me. And so I don't get good feedback. So now I'm going to be more defensive because I feel as though there's a threat. It doesn't necessarily mean the person is threatening. However, my brain is going to tell me, hey, we need to be more protective. We need to do some strategies so that you're not fully exposed. You know, one way I look at scenarios like this, uh, I would say as of late, is because have you ever watched a TV show or a movie where the you know the narration, the storytelling part of it, they expose a character in a certain light, and you may dislike that. They may be a villain or villainess, right? Sure. But the moment they turn the story to their backstory and why they are the way they are or why they're acting the way they're acting. Yeah. You then kind of fall in love with them and you're almost rooting for them. Right. I feel like that's the same thing that happens day to day to our lives is that, you know, there are people who seem villainous or not for us 
but we don't understand their backstory and why they are the way they are for us to have and employ that empathy that's required to have this, this dance, as you say, this iteration of relationship. You know, we, right. we just assume they are who they are and we project, you know, our worst fears onto them and they become right. true. Yes, you got it. This is why in the absence of, you know, a face, I, I don't really get to engage with people in the same sort of humanness that we are all in. And so you're exactly right. I, I mean, over and over and over again, because you can identify and go, oh, that's why they're harsh. Or, you know, I recently had an interaction I had shared with someone that I I was a competitive gymnastics coach for a number of years. And so somebody thought that my response to them when they were really struggling was kind of harsh, but they remembered that I had told them I was a coach for so long. And they're like, oh, this is just another side of her coming out. Right. And I'm not sure I prefer it, but I get it. And then it switched for their reaction because then they're like, oh, wait, we're on the same team. <laughs> She's not trying to like oppress me or fight back against me. She actually is helping me, trying to get me to where I want to go. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, Brain Science, with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. 